Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The first reading this evening can be found on page 545 of the Bibles in the pews. And it's Psalm chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. That's page 545. Psalm chapter 6. Sorry, Psalm 6. For the director of music, with stringed instruments, according to Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from his grave? I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. The second reading can be found on page 1183 and is taken from Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. That's page 1183, chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do, we have sung, we have just sung, and we continue to pray that you would teach us to love your sacred word and to view our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, in these words. And we pray tonight for an openness before your word, an openness of our hearts, an openness to you, an openness and willingness to receive your grace and mercy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, please do sit down as you are sitting down. If you could turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 6, that's page 545. And uh, there's also a handout amongst the, the pieces of paper you were given on the way in uh, that you can use to follow on or uh, follow along or, or to make notes on if you wish. On the morning of the 21st of March, 1556, Thomas Cranmer was taken from rooms in Christchurch, Oxford. Uh, where he had been kept under arrest and uh, led to the university church in the centre of the city. And he was, at that moment, a broken man, both physically and spiritually. 
Although he was the quiet architect behind uh, the English Reformation and the Protestant theology of the Church of England as we know it today and enjoy it today, he had uh, recently renounced all of that. Just a few months before, he'd watched his good friends Latimer and Ridley burn at the stake. He'd seen them remain faithful to the gospel of grace right to the end, right through the agony of death. But Cranmer had caved in. And now he was on his way to listen to a sermon at the university church, which was going to explain why he too was just about to be burned as a heretic. And the plan was that he would then stand to speak and publicly renounce what he knew to be true one last time before his death. Now, as he listened to that sermon, I do wonder what he was thinking at that moment. He was probably at the lowest point of his entire life. Uh, Perhaps he was thinking, as some of us do from time to time, I may as well give it up. I've pretty much given up already. But I also don't think it's absurd to imagine him also at that moment, pondering the words of David from the Bible. Uh, words written as David struggled with weakness and guilt and despair. Words from the Psalms that he would have been so familiar with. Words like these ones from uh, Psalm 6. There are indeed uh, times in all of our lives when we experience the the deepest emotional and physical and spiritual despair. Uh, What we might call I may as well give up kind of moments You may not yet have faced such a moment in your life, but you almost certainly will. You may have done so already. All Christians do. And a particular difficulty in situations like that is that we don't know what to say. We don't know what to pray. We don't have the the words to articulate what is right in that situation, which is potentially very dangerous, potentially fatal in fact, because prayer is the God-given way out of those kinds of situations. So what are we to do? Well, God in his great kindness and great mercy has also given us the Psalms. The Psalms work as something like spiritual defibrillators uh, to jumpstart our hearts and jumpstart our prayers. Uh, They, if you like, kick us back into life They open our mouths and give us the words we need. And Psalm 6, which we're going to be looking at tonight, is no exception to that. Of course, we do need to remember that this is a psalm that comes from a particular person at a a particular time. It's a psalm of David, as you can see from the inscription at the beginning there. Uh, Most of you will already know um, that David uh, is the king of God's people in the Old Testament history. A great king in many ways. Uh, but also a flawed and fragile king. And we'll see when we come to look at this a little closer uh, later that this prayer seems to be coming from a time when David was tearfully suffering under God's anger. He seems to have been in deep and painful sickness and also under threat from his enemies. Uh, We'll see all of those things as we look through. Can we, I wonder, link it to a particular moment in David's life? Well, uh, the only incident mentioned so far in the book of Psalms is the one you'll see there. It's at the head of Psalm 3, just across the page. Uh, Psalm 3 was, you can see there was written as David was fleeing from his son Absalom. 
an episode that you can read about in the book of 2 Samuel for yourself, the end of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, just to tell that story very briefly, Absalom is uh, violent and ambitious and he has set himself up as king in place of David and has pushed out his father and it's possible that all these early psalms have that, that setting in mind. Certainly as uh, David had, was uh, fleeing from the city of Jerusalem, he would have been acutely aware that he was reaping the consequences in many ways of past sins and failures, especially his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Is he doing those things as king set, he, it set up a sinful pattern right at the heart of the nation, which has been taken up and magnified by Absalom, his son? David at that time would have been relatively old. Uh, The crisis might well have triggered a painful breakdown or an illness of some sort. As he left the city, we're told that his feet were bare and his head covered with shame. All around him were weeping. Apart, of course, from his enemies who were taking every opportunity to mock him and to get their own back. Uh, So that kind of scenario kind of fits quite well with what David says here, says here, but also we'd have to say it's not explicit. The psalm itself doesn't insist upon that. And, uh, you know, perhaps it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Look again with me at the inscription at the head of the psalm. And this is part of the psalm. And it begins with these instructions. This is for the director of music. It's with string instruments. It's according to the, the Shimonith. Um, It's a psalm of David. So yes, this is David's own prayer, but now it's been set to music. Now it's been taken on a new life to help God's people uh, through David, through the words of David, to pray earnestly and with confidence in times of despair. So in some ways, not knowing the original situation is an advantage because it allows us to use this prayer much more widely across a whole range of different situations and I hope this evening to persuade you that the the purpose of this this psalm is something like this it's to encourage and to equip God's people which includes us to join David in calling on the mercy and love of God in times of deep distress in those I may as well give up kind of moments and this psalm is here to help us to join David in his deep confidence that the Lord will indeed hear him So I'm just going to split up that into two for what follows, uh, beginning uh, with verses one through to seven of the psalm. Verses one through to seven. Follow David in calling on God's mercy and love. Follow David in calling on God's mercy and love. Now just look with me at the, the many, many different ways David demonstrates how to call out to God here, how he teaches us to call out to God here. The first of which is simply crying out in desperation. Take a look again at verses one through to four with me. This is what David says. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. 
Now notice within that five times, no less than five times, David is calling out with God's personal name, Yahweh, the Lord. In other words, he's not praying as many people do to some distant and uninterested deity on the off chance that they might be there and might listen and might do something. No, he's praying to the true God who is real, who has come close to him in covenant relationship and whom he knows personally by name. That relationship is the basis on which David is making his appeal. That relationship is what David is encouraging in his people and encouraging now in us. And within that relationship, David makes no less than seven requests in quick succession. There are two there in verse one. Do not rebuke or punish me and do not discipline me. There are two in verse two. Be merciful or show favor to me and then heal me. And three in verse four. Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me. And then among the requests is one desperate question in verse three. How long, O Lord, how long? Now, I hope you, in some ways you find this pattern of prayer quite surprising, uh, almost quite shocking. Uh, now, you, you see, we often teach people not to do this, not to do what David is doing right here. We say, don't just ask for things. This is what we say to our, it's how I teach our, our children to pray. Don't just ask for things. Now, you may have come across the, the ACTS scheme for praying. Uh, some adoration first, maybe, some confession then there may be some thanksgiving and then you know you have permission to ask for something but it's quite striking here isn't it David is not interested in anything like that he just gets straight in there you see it's interesting he's understand he's understood the main thing that prayer is all about which is us expressing our desperate desperate dependence upon God how desperately we need him and him alone. And David is clearly desperate, all right. And the source of his desperation is right there in verse one, the anger, the hot rage or wrath of his God. Now, let's just pause for a moment here because you may well know that the idea that God might be angry with us, that we might be under his wrath in some way, and uh, that his wrath in some way needs to be dealt with, that idea is not a popular one. For example, there's been a, a bit of a fuss in the, in the States just recently over the Stuart Townend song, In, in Christ Alone. It's a, a most excellent song, which we know very well here, and we sing it quite often. Uh, it's at Christchurch. And uh, you might remember that it has uh, two lines in it which go like this. Uh, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, but just recently, the Presbyterian Church in the USA has now dropped that song from its hymn book because of that line about the wrath of God. They wanted to do this. They wanted to substitute the words, the love of God was magnified. They thought that was kind of nicer, I guess. But uh, Stuart Tannant and Keith Getty, who wrote the song, quite rightly objected. And if you want explicit biblical evidence that they were right to do that, that they were right to stand their ground on those words, 
that there is such a thing as God's wrath and it does need to be dealt with, uh, you need look no further than this psalm and this verse, verse one of Psalm 6. And the anger that David is experiencing here, isn't it? it was kind of some sort of vague or distance or conceptual thing. You can see here for David, it is personal and it is confronting. David knows that his Lord is angry with him personally and he's appealing for that anger to be taken away. Now, there's much more we could say about this, but just let me say for this kind of anger, this kind of anger is from most perspectives a very, very good thing and we need to be able to praise it and defend it. Unlike our anger, this kind of anger is indeed praiseworthy. It demonstrates and expresses God's profound opposition to evil. It shows his justice. It shows that he cares. It shows that he's not indifferent to the wickedness that we see in the world. That's true whether God's anger is being expressed in some final act of judgment or whether as here it's being expressed as a a means of chastening or disciplining. Now, of course, having said that, uh, we'd also have to say it is, of course, not a good thing to be, for us personally, when we find ourselves under God's anger, which is, of course, why David is praying so earnestly here for that anger to be taken away. Now, even at, you may have noticed as the psalm was read, even to the point of arguing with God, which is the second thing that David demonstrates for us here, arguing. Take a look at the end of verse four, for example. David says, save me because of your unfailing love. Uh, Or even stronger, take verse five. No one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? And again, I I guess the boldness of it might surprise us. Can it really be right to argue with God? To almost bargain with him, if you like. But actually, think about it a bit more. It's quite an established biblical pattern. Uh, Moses does it with the Lord after the golden calf incident. You might not know that from the book of Exodus. Be faithful to your promises, Moses argues. David does it uh, here and elsewhere. Daniel does it, Daniel chapter nine. All the prophets pretty much do it. We find such arguing right across the Psalms, certainly. Now, why is that? Well, it does seem that God would like us to do this. He would like us to think through the theology of our relationship with him. And so in his providence, he will engineer situations which encourage us to do that in our prayers, uh, to, to, to make appeal to his character, to his unfailing love and so forth, as David is doing here. So if you think your prayers are a little lacking in argument, as I suspect many of us our prayers are, perhaps, you know, this is a time to spice them up. However, having said that, we might find the argument, the particular argument that David uses here a little puzzling. So when he says, verse five, no one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? That is, who praises you from Sheol, from the underworld, from the place of the dead? Uh, so we might wonder, did David not have a, a hope of life after death? Praise our ever, not ever ending praise after death. And I'll come back to that in a moment. 
But before then, just let's think about uh, the essence of David's argument here. I think it goes something like this. He's, he's saying something like, look, Lord, I was made to praise you. You know, that's what I'm here for as one of your creatures. And, and I want to praise you to your people and before your enemies. And I want to do it right here and right now. But if I die, I won't be able to. If I die, I won't be able to do that, especially if I die under your anger. So please, please take that anger away. Save me. You can see how the, the situation in David's life is, is forcing David to articulate his purpose in life, forcing him to think through and argue on the basis of his relationship uh, with Yahweh, his God. Now, having said all that, and I, I do think it's probably fair to say that David's resurrection hope wouldn't have been as, as fully formed as ours can be now. We'll come back to this a little later. Now, there are some hints in the Psalms of hope beyond death and some of the Psalms of David, like Psalm 16, for example. But we are in a different situation, knowing the Lord Jesus more closely. We do have a, a greater hope and a much better way of appealing to the Lord. And uh, that's what we're going to come back to right at the end. But before we do that, uh, you might also find the final thing that uh, David demonstrates here quite surprising. And that's uh, what we might call his lamenting. Now he's begun this already, of course. He's pouring out his condition before the Lord. Verses two and three. I am faint. My bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. Uh, But it's in verses six and seven that he really gets going on this. I am worn out with groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Again, I think we're sometimes slow to do this in our prayers, are we not? We'd much rather hide our condition or try to hide our condition before God. It's interesting, we're also like that with one another, especially, I think, as, as English people. How are you, someone asks. What we don't say is, I'm a mess. My relationships are in a mess. I'm a moral and physical wreck, and my life has fallen apart. That's what we don't say. What we do say is, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? And uh, that kind of attitude then seeps through into our prayers too. I'm fine, we imply, even when we're not. And so there's no substance, there's no openness in the relationship. But there's no such stiff upper lip stoicism in the Psalms. The Psalms are full of lamenting. And uh, it seems daft, doesn't it? After all, what are we trying to do when we hold back from God? We can't hide it. That would be impossible, wouldn't it? Uh, and it is important for us to articulate how we are feeling before God because once again, it acknowledges and expresses to him our deepest needs. It shows our dependence upon him, which is the essence of prayer. And you can see here, really, the the more emotionally intense, the better. Uh, Verse six, David's bed is wet with tears, which must be pretty uncomfortable. And he wants, uh, but it's presumably true. And so he's in an emotional state and he wants to bring all his emotion before the Lord. 
because he knows that unless he does so, he is not going to be able to move on to the, to the much more confident praise that we find at the end of the psalm. So it's quite confronting, isn't it? I hope you can see some of the ways in which our prayers can be, become much fuller, richer, bolder, more open, more muscular, if you like, more sincere, more expressive, and certainly longer. But as we begin to think a little bit more about how Psalm 6 might shape our own prayers, I'm going to look at a couple of examples in a moment. We do need to deal with one of the things that people find most tricky about this psalm, and it's this. Is David making a a kind of one-to-one correspondence, if you like, between the anger of the Lord and his current physical condition? Is he ill because he sinned? That's one of the questions this psalm raises. And it does seem so, doesn't it? He calls out for the anger of the Lord to be taken away and he's experiencing the anger of the Lord in his illness and in his sickness and in the closeness of death. And earlier on, I suggested one possible scenario where David might have been feeling the anger of the Lord at his sin and failure and feeling that physically as he fled as an old man from his son Absalom. But we do have to be careful here when, when we come to use this psalm or uh, say this psalm together. Uh, because we mustn't conclude that there is always such a connection between sin and sickness. Uh, you might know the moment in John's Gospel when the disciples asked Jesus about a man born blind. They asked, who sinned, uh, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's their assumption. Their, their assumption is that there's some sort of connection. And Jesus' answer is, neither. So how are we to take this? Well, when we or when people we know are severely ill, we don't do what the disciples did and automatically assume that it's the result of some specific sin. But what we can do and what we should do is follow the pattern here. So example one. Imagine being in a situation where you're overcome by pain and illness. Perhaps like David, your bones feel like they're on fire. Perhaps like David, the pain is so intense that your eyes are streaming and you feel death is close at hand. And this psalm does encourage us that it's right to pray about those things. It's even right to ask that those things be taken Away as David does here, so long as we realize that we're not holding God to any specific promise that he will take them away. So we can be encouraged to do all of that, but first, the pattern of this psalm tells us there is something else to ask for first. There is a higher priority. First, we do verse one we ask for forgiveness, we ask for the anger of God to be taken away in our sin. Striking, this is Jesus' teaching too, of course. Whatever our physical condition, our greatest need is always spiritual. Our instinct in the face of illness should be like David's instinct. Deal with the deepest problem first. Find the forgiveness first. So that's one possible scenario where we might helpfully uh, be using this psalm. But I want to uh, emphasize a different scenario where I think that the words of Psalm 6 
may well help us. Uh, Take example uh, number two. This is on the second side of your handout, I think. Uh, And imagine yourself now in a situation where, again, you're overcome, but this time you're overcome much more by the guilt side of things. And perhaps you might say so much that it hurts physically. After all, as many commentators note with psalms like this one, it is quite possible to read the descriptions of pain like those in this psalm metaphorically as well as literally and physically. You know, our guilt can be so intense that this is appropriate language to use. And let's suppose uh, we've sinned so badly and so obviously that we start to think things like, well, that must be it. Now, surely that must be it with my relationship with God. I've run out of chances. I may as well give up. Now, this is the the kind of situation addressed by John Piper in a very good article that he wrote in Christianity Today a few years ago, and it's called uh, Gutsy Guilt, and I put a link link to it on the handout if you want to chase it up later. It's an article he wrote after coming back from a missions conference uh, where they've been talking about how uh, young men especially uh, would give up their passion for, for mission as they struggled with sexual immorality. And this dismayed John Piper, you know, because he wants... Uh, those people to go out there and make a difference. So Piper has in mind the kind of sin where Satan is going to tell you to give up, where Satan might well say to someone, and this is the words that John Piper uses, see, you're a loser. You may as well not even worship. No way are you going to make any serious commitment of your life to Jesus Christ after this. You may as well just get yourself a good job, join the American dream, uh, so you can buy yourself a big widescreen TV and watch sex until you drop. But Piper's point in that article is this. There are no sins like that. There are no sins where those words are true. That's not how it works with our God who has, verse four we've seen here, unfailing love. The very fact that this psalm is here in the Bible and psalms like it across the book of Psalms proves to us that we can approach our guilt and failure, you to use Piper's words, in a gutsy way calling upon the mercy of the Lord over and over and over again. Just like David did. And if we can't find the words, we can find them here. Psalm 6 is precisely the kind of bold, gutsy prayer to use in a situation like that. And it can, and it should lead to the kind of gutsy confidence that we see at the end of the psalm, verses 8 through to 10. And this is our final point tonight, as this psalm finally encourages us to join David, trusting that God will hear him. Join David, trusting that God will hear him. Just look at the amazing confidence with which this psalm ends from verse 8. Away from me, all of you who do evil, For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. 
All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They'll turn back in sudden disgrace. It is a a wonderful and in many ways surprising confidence. David's enemies have been crowding around him. They've been gleefully hoping that this will be it for him, that the anger of the Lord will finally finish him off and they can step into the gap. But those against the Lord's anointed are thwarted because this is David, the Lord's anointed, someone who can call God with his personal name. And when he calls on his Lord in wholehearted, exclusive, bold dependence like this, he can be utterly confident of a merciful and loving response. But remember what David has also done here. He's taken his prayer from that moment of despair and has set his prayer to music so that his people can then join in, so that they can pray like this too, so that they can have the same confidence in the end. But I don't know about you, Ed. I think I would have been a little nervous singing with this kind of confidence back in the days of David. You know, I've been kind of looking around a little sheepishly thinking, is he, is he serious? And it's one thing for the Lord's anointed to have this kind of confidence. Well, well what about me? What about little me? But think with me for a moment uh, where else we find the experiences of this psalm in the Bible. Where else do we find the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, under the anger of God, although not for his own sin? Where else do we find the Christ suffering intensely like this, his bones in an agony of pain? Where else do we find the Christ surrounded by his enemies, mocking him gleefully? And where else do we find the Christ ultimately triumphant? Well, of course, we find all those things at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the light of that, really, that this prayer ultimately makes sense for us to pray. In the light of the cross, we can finally see how it's possible to pray like this, to approach God with this kind of bold, brash, argumentative boldness after even the worst of failures. We had it spelled out for us in the the second of our readings tonight from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through to 15. Paul says this, when you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, Paul explains, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. In other words, he took all of your sins, he took the list of all of your sins, all the things that rightfully provoke the anger of God, even that one, even that one that you're thinking about right now, that's making you think that you must give up, the one that's making you despair, He took that list away and he nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, those enemies who were hoping to see you die under God's anger, having done all that, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And once we've understood that, once we've understood that, we can face anything, any failure, 
any desperate situation, even death. On the 21st of March, 1556, Thomas Cranmer was in the University Church in Oxford. His face was wet with tears as he listened to the sermon condemning him to death. He was no doubt at that moment thinking himself the worst and most unfaithful of sinners given what he'd just done. And then it was his turn to go up into the pulpit to speak. Remember, this was supposed to be uh, the moment where he would make a public recantation of the, of the same gospel of grace we've been hearing about afresh tonight. But I believe that as well as weeping through that sermon, Cranmer has also been praying. And he's been praying something along the lines of what we've seen here in Psalm 6. And so when he gets up to speak, he does something which at that time was quite unexpected, with a miraculous confidence, he recants his recantation. I was wrong, he says. And instead of swearing a new allegiance to those who had imprisoned him, he renounces them as the enemies of Christ with all their false doctrine. And in the commotion, he's dragged out of the pulpit. And he's dragged outside to the stake and fire is put to the wood and he takes his right hand, the one which signed his recantation that he now so deeply regrets and he thrusts it into the flames saying, for as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished therefore. And as he dies in agony, he cries out with the words of Stephen, the first martyr, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Uh, Please, uh, we implore you now, teach us to pray. Uh, Please use uh, psalms like this and other psalms to to teach us to pray. And in those dark and desperate moments, to cry out to you like this, uh, to wrestle with you even, to appeal to you, and to pour out our condition with complete openness. And Father, I'd like to particularly pray for any of us uh, amongst us tonight, uh, especially struggling with guilt and failure, thinking to themselves, I may as well give up. Uh, We pray for them to hear what is being said, that there are words that they can use, there is a prayer that they can use, that will allow them, as well as the rest of us, to approach you with confidence We pray for all of us to have the confident hope that comes from knowing Jesus who bore your wrath in our place. And we ask it in his name. Amen.